This is Karen Nutt, Director of Child Development Services with the Braille Institute of America. The Dr. Bill Telephone Series is an educational program focusing on pediatric eye conditions for parents, teachers, and other professionals working with young children with visual impairments. The topics presented should not be considered a medical or educational consultation, but information to help us better understand pediatric eye conditions. So thank you, Dr. Bill, and you're on. Well, thank you very much, Karen. And I, I really would like to welcome you and congratulate you for being named uh, the director of the children's program here at Braille Institute. So congratulations to you. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Well, this evening we're going to be talking about the process of vision. You know, for so many of us, we have heard at one time in our life that vision is just like a camera. You basically look at something and take a picture, and that is how we see things. But in reality, vision is much, much more complicated than taking a photograph. So we're going to talk about this as a real important primary fundamental to understand how vision works, and this will then help you to understand how to help children who do have low vision. Now, the most essential element for vision is light. In other words, if we did not have any light, the human eye would not be able to see. And the reason that we say the human eye is that there are other animals that are able to see when there is no light. They are able to absorb electronic magnification in terms of electrons that are floating in the air, and they are able to see certain things even if it is completely dark. But the human eye is such that it requires light. Now, what is light? Light is basically energy, and it's in the form of what's called electromagnetic radiation. So if we were to take a very, very small match and we were to light it in a dark room, we're able to see that particular light. Now, what is coming from that match are little clusters of energy that are called photons, and that is spelled P-H-O-T-O-N-S. And it's very important to understand how these photons work because this is really the basic premise as to how we see different things. Each of these photons that comes from the light from the match, they travel in a wave form, very similar to if we had a little ball that was floating on the ocean it would move up and down like in a wave pattern. And this particular type of wave pattern, it is very, very small. So even though it is traveling up and down like a wave, we perceive the light moving in just a straight line. Now, the way that the energy of the photon is moving up and down on that wave that is actually called the frequency. In other words, how fast would that photon be moving up and down 
That is then going to be your frequency. And we also know that the distance between the top of a wave to the top of the next wave as a photon travels, that distance can vary. For some sources of light, the distance between the two waves at the top might be very, very close together. And that distance between the two waves is called a wavelength. And I know this is getting kind of into physics, but we won't go too much further. But this is very, very important. If the wavelength is very, very short, that is called short wavelength radiation. And if it is a short wavelength, it is something that is going to produce a blue-colored light. If the wavelength becomes a little bit longer, then the color of the light coming from that photon would then be a green-colored light. If the wavelength gets even a little bit longer, it becomes a yellow light. And if it becomes a little bit longer yet, it then becomes an orange-colored light. And if it's even longer yet, it becomes a red-colored light. So what this means is that from the light that we see, the photons are going to be traveling with different wavelengths. And this is how we are able to see different colors. When you light a match, if you look at the very tip of the match, you may notice that it's going to have a different color. Maybe it's a little bit more reddish. And if you look in the very center of it, it may then appear to be a little bit more yellow-orange. That is because the photons coming from that light, they are traveling with different wavelengths. Now, what's also very significant about these different wavelengths of these little photons of light is that these photons traveling at different wavelengths, they also have other properties in vision. If you have a short wavelength light, such as a blue light, that particular photon, as it travels to the eye, if it hits an imperfection on the eye, let's say that a child has a cataract, which means that the lens inside the eye is a little bit clouded. When that blue photon of light hits the cataract, it scatters and it causes a lot of glare. So it would be similar to if you're driving down the street looking towards the sun and your windshield of your car is very dirty. You're going to have a hard time seeing clearly because that blue light scatters so much. On the other hand, when we have wavelengths of light that are the long wavelengths, such as the red, if that happens to hit the cataract, it does not scatter as much. So this is something that's going to affect how well a child could see under certain conditions. If we know that the child that we are working with 
has a cataract, or maybe that this child has a cornea problem where the very front tissue, the eye of the cornea, is not perfectly clear, we know that if we have the child in a blue or a green environment, all the light that is coming into the eye, it's going to scatter, and the child's not going to be able to see well at all. So what does that mean? That means it would be very wise that we don't paint this baby's room blue or green. It is very, very wise that we don't keep this child near a window where the child could see the blue sky all the time because the blue light coming in is going to cause more scattering and more glare and more discomfort for the child. And what we also know is that if a child does have a problem such as a problem with the cornea or the cataract, we can ask the eye doctor to prescribe glasses that will filter out the blue light. And by filtering out the blue light that comes into the eye and scatters, the child is not going to have that type of problem. So this is a good way to help these kids if they have a cataract or a cornea problem that we may then go ahead and prescribe glasses that have a slight tint of yellow. So this is a way that we could really, really make things a lot easier for them. Another important thing to also understand about these photons and the wavelength is that we know that there are wavelengths of light that are very, very short. And if the wavelength of light is very short, this is going to produce invisible light. In other words, there is a certain type of light energy that is floating in the sky and in the air that the human eye cannot see, but it is, in fact, there. And if we have very short wavelengths of light, it is called ultraviolet light, ultraviolet radiation. Now, we have heard about ultraviolet radiation in the sense that too much ultraviolet radiation it could cause skin cancer, and that's why you're told to wear sunscreen at the beach. Or if you go to a tanning salon, they put you in these little booths, so to speak, and there's a bunch of fluorescent tube lights in there. The fluorescent tube lights, they produce a lot of ultraviolet light, and that is how people get tanned in the tanning salon. Now, if we have children who have any type of problem to their retina or if they have a problem of a cataract, we do not want any ultraviolet radiation to be near their eyes. So this is why we would then recommend again that the doctor could make glasses that would also filter out the ultraviolet radiation as well as the blue light. And this is a way that we could prevent the eyes from getting worse by filtering this type of radiation. We also know that it would be very helpful for parents and you as teachers who help these families 
to understand that the type of lighting that the family has in the home is very, 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 very important. If you were to find that the family has fluorescent light bulbs, these are those four-foot tubes. Maybe you have them in your offices right now. But those types of fluorescent light tubes, they are very efficient in that they don't use a lot of energy, but they do produce a lot of ultraviolet and blue light. So we want to encourage the families to try to switch their lighting to something different that would not have that type of ultraviolet and blue light. The most efficient, economical, and effective types of lighting that's available now for children with low vision is what's called LED lighting. And the LED stands for light emitting diodes. The benefits of the LED lights are, number one, they're the brightest light at the lowest consumption of energy. So if we were to compare how much energy does the LED light use as compared to the conventional screw-in bulb, we would say that it only uses about 20% of the energy. So that's a very, very large amount of savings to the family in terms of their energy bill. Number two, the LED bulbs, they do not emit, they do not emit ultraviolet radiation. And number three, with the LED bulbs, we could specify what color light that we want. Now, the way that you specify the color that you want is going to be by the temperature, and this is denominated by the degrees in Kelvin. You basically want to have a LED light that is going to have a temperature of 5,000 degrees or less. 5,000 degrees or less. If it is a LED bulb that has a temperature of over 5,000 degrees, then we know that there is some blue light and that could be dangerous. But you could also see the color of the light if you go to a lighting store or even to Home Depot or another place like that. So, in addition to doing these things that we talked about to protect the child's eyes from the ultraviolet and the blue light, we also know that we can change the lighting in the home to make it brighter and more effective for the child to see without any of that other type of danger of potentially hurting their eyes. Now, another really great thing about the LED lights is that they do not get hot the way that the incandescent regular screw-in light bulb does. You may have been around a regular incandescent light bulb and it burns out and you get up on a stool and you're going to change that bulb. Well, what you notice is that that light bulb is so hot and it's very, very dangerous because it is so hot. We have seen many times that parents have put a lamp very close to the child's toys or the food and the child has accidentally touched the lamp 
or they have accidentally touched the bulb. With the LED light, you don't have that type of concern, which is very, very good. And another thing that is really very, very nice about the LED lights that you could recommend is that there are different types of LED lights. If you want to simply have a light that's going to be placed on a desk, there are desk lamps that work very well with the LED light. There's also cans that have recessed lighting that you could place in the ceiling so it gives a very, very nice modern look. And there's also torsier floor lamps that have a pole, and the light shines up towards the ceiling, reflects off the ceiling, and it illuminates the entire room. So this is something that you can do as you are working with the families and educating them so that they know that in all instances in the house, they have the best lighting for the child without the ultraviolet and the blue light that can cause damage to the eyes. So, now that we understand the physics about light and how light travels in these photons, we now can understand how it is that we see. Whenever we look at any object with our eyes, these photons of light are going to travel and they're going to then move towards the eye and they will then strike the first tissue of the eye, which is called the cornea. The cornea, spelled C-O-R-N-E-A, this is the transparent curved tissue on the very front part of your eye that you would apply a contact lens to. The cornea is an extremely important tissue to the eye because it is this curvature of the cornea that allows these photons of light to focus inside the eye. In other words, if we did not have a cornea, it would not be possible to focus on any type of detail. And in fact, if we did not have the cornea, we would not be able to even make glasses of the power that is equivalent to the cornea to help a person to see. So the cornea is a very, very important structure that enables one to see, but there can be complications and birth defects that affect the cornea. If you look at a child and you notice that the cornea is not perfectly clear, this is when a child may have a genetic abnormality to the cornea. There are also other types of conditions in which a child doesn't keep the eyes completely closed when the child is sleeping, and this causes the cornea to become whitish or cloudy. So if you see any kind of cloudiness to the cornea, that is the time to refer them to a pediatric ophthalmologist. Now, a pediatric ophthalmologist is the medical doctor who specializes in treating these types of disorders to the tissues of the eye. They are the people who are licensed and trained to perform surgery 
and to prescribe medication for these types of conditions. On the other hand, an optometrist is a doctor who can diagnose these types of problems as well, but the optometrist cannot perform surgery or prescribe all medications for these types of treatments. So I feel it is more effective to refer children that you notice any type of eye problem to to a pediatric ophthalmologist who specializes in that type of condition. We're very fortunate here in Los Angeles in that we do have Children's Hospital Los Angeles, the UCLA Doris Stein Eye Institute, and the USC Keck School of Medicine, Doheny Eye Institute. So we have three major organizations that have ophthalmologists that specialize in each of these tissues. And this is very important because if you're in other areas, they may only have just a generalized pediatric ophthalmologist. Okay, so the photon travels towards the eye and then it focuses through the cornea. The cornea is then going to focus that photon of light so that it enters the pupil of your eye. Now, when you look at yourself in the mirror, you have all seen your pupil. The pupil is the black circle in the center of your eye. It is surrounded by the colored part of your eye, the iris. Now, there's a lot of people who do not realize that the black portion of your eye that that is actually a hole. It is not a black colored piece of tissue, but it's a hole. And the pupil is the opening that allows these photons to get inside the eye. The pupil is going to change size depending on how much light that there is. So if you're out at the snow and it's too bright, the pupils are going to get smaller and your pupils may be very, very tiny. If you go out into the pitch dark at night, the pupils want to let more light in so they become larger. Now, immediately behind the pupil, inside the eyeball itself, is what's called the lens. And this is a lens that is able to change its shape. Now, the reason that this lens changes shape is because when the lens changes shape, it's able to focus these photons of light more accurately on the very, very back part of the eye, which is called the retina. You could think of the retina as wallpaper that lines the entire inside of your eyeball. And... This particular type of wallpaper it is also organized very similar to that of a dartboard, or if any of you like to shoot bow and arrow, to a bow and arrow target, where in the very center, there's a circular area where the bullseye is. Now, that entire retina it is made up of millions and millions of specialized cells. And these cells are called the rod cells, and then there are cone cells. 
Now, the cone cells are located right in the very center of the bullseye. And the cone cells that are right in the very center are able to see small details and they're able to see colors. So when that photon of light goes through the cornea and then it goes through the pupil and then it goes through the lens and the lens will focus it right on to the bullseye macula, the very center region where all the cone cells are, that photon of light will focus on a single cone cell and that single cone cell will be able to determine what color is this light and it will be able to see what size detail is this light. So the cone cells in the very center of your macula are very important because they can give you the ability to see details. They allow you to identify objects and people. And they allow you to be able to determine whether or not something has a particular color or not. Now, in this area of the macula where we do have these cone cells, these cone cells are really packed in there very tightly. I mean, there are millions of them just in this very small area that's about the size of the diameter of a pencil eraser. So you have millions of cells right in that small pencil eraser area, and that gives the child the ability to see details. Now, if a child is born with a disease that damages the macula, then these children do not have normal central vision. They do not have normal color vision, and they do not see details clearly. An example of a condition that it affects the macula like this is albinism. Albinism is when a child is born without the normal coloration and the skin is going to be very light in color. We also see that the eyes may not really have any distinctive color, so the eyes appear a little bit pinkish. You look at these kids' hair, their hair is very, very blonde. That is called oculocutaneous albinism, meaning that it's affecting the eyes, oculo, and cutaneous means it affects the skin. But you know what's interesting? There's also some kids who have ocular albinism. You look at their hair. They got black hair. They got brown eyes. Their skin is dark. But when we look inside their eye, we notice that the macula, it doesn't have the normal appearance. It doesn't have those cells. And those kids often cannot see colors, and their vision is also very, very blurred. So that's the function of the macula portion of the retina. Now, the area that surrounds the macula, the remaining wallpaper in the eye, that is covered with what are called rod cells. And the rod cells are very different. They're very, very important because they give us the ability to see under dim illumination. 
they also give us the ability to see in our peripheral vision. But they do not have the ability to see color, and they do not have the ability to see small detail. So, if you have a child who has a problem to the peripheral retina, which is the rod cells, these kids are going to be night blind. If you turn down the lights a little bit, they're just blind. They don't want to move. You watch their body language. They become stiff. These kids, they cannot walk independently in the dark. And examples of this particular type of condition include an inherited disease called retinitis pigmentosa, also known as RP. Usher's syndrome is a form of RP that also includes hearing impairment. They can't see at night. They can't see things on the side of them. They can't find their bottle. They can't find their toy. We also know that there are children who are born premature and have a condition called retinopathy of prematurity in which the rod cells could become damaged due to scar tissue. And these kids, you could stand right next to them. They don't even know that you're there. You have to move directly in front of them for them to see you. So this is the basic components of how the photons of light enter the eye and they focus on the retina. And this is the first part of vision. But vision is really much more complicated than this because once the photon of light focuses on a rod or a cone cell, a chemical reaction occurs in that cell. And the cell then produces an electrical spark. And that spark goes down a fiber, and that fiber goes into what is called the optic nerve. And the optic nerve contains hundreds of thousands of these fibers. And that optic nerve, it connects the eye to the very back of the brain called the occipital lobe of the brain. So many of you have seen how your television is connected to the wall with a cable. Well, the eye has the same thing. There is a cable, and this is called the optic nerve, and this optic nerve, it connects the eye to the very back of the brain. And you could feel with your hand the very back of your head. In the very center portion, you'll probably feel a little bump. That, that bump area is called the occipital protuberance. You don't have to remember that, but that bump is where all of the information from the central retina focuses there. So if we were to wonder... If you're going to read a book or you're looking at a person's face from far away and you could recognize who that person is, you say, oh, my gosh, look at this Brad Pitt. That word or that picture of Brad Pitt 
is going to send electrical signals, and those electrical signals are going to stimulate that bump area in the back of your brain. That central region of the back of your head is where detailed information is processed. Now, if a child is happening to learn to walk and they fall backwards and they hit the back of their head on the concrete and the back of the head is damaged, the first thing that the child may lose would be their central vision. They may not have the ability to identify faces. They may not be able to see details. And they can be classified as being legally blind if that central region of the occipital lobe of the brain is damaged. And this is the same thing that happens. If a person is in a fight and another person picks up a hammer and hits them in the back of the head right in the center, the person who was hit with the hammer would most likely lose their central vision. So this should mean two things to you that are very important. Number one, you may have a problem to the cone cells and the macula of your eye that would cause you to have no central vision and no color vision and no detailed vision. But you could also experience the same type of vision loss if you hit your head, and it damaged the very central region of the back occipital lobe of the brain. And this is what often happens to kids when they're playing sports or you're riding your bike or you get in a car accident. If you hit the very back central region of your brain, you could lose that particular type of vision. Now, the regions that surround that bump that's protruding from the back part of your head, that is called the peripheral occipital lobe of the brain. And all of the information from the rod cells in the periphery of the retina, they are going to focus on specific areas of the peripheral occipital lobe of the brain. And the way that it happens to work out is that the rod cells that sees your peripheral vision on your right side all focus on the left side of the occipital lobe of the brain. So I'll say that again. If you are looking straight ahead and you notice that you could see things in your right side, all of that information that is on your right side is focusing on the rod cells on the peripheral retina and those information all end up on the left side of the occipital over the brain. So if you were in a car accident and you damaged the left side of the occipital lobe of the brain, there's a good chance that you would lose all of your peripheral vision on the right side with both eyes. If you were in an injury or maybe you had a stroke 
and you were bleeding in the brain, and it affected the right occipital lobe of the brain, there's a very good chance you would lose all your peripheral vision on the left side of both eyes. And these conditions, when you lose the peripheral vision on either side, it's called a hemianopsia. H-E-M-I-A-N-O-P-S-I-A. Now, the brain is also involved in vision in many other ways. We know that the left occipital lobe of the brain is very involved in reading words. And the right occipital lobe of the brain is very involved in doing artistic things, drawing, assembling puzzles, being very creative is that right occipital lobe of the brain. Now, if we move a little bit forward in the brain, to the region, if you imagine that you're putting on some headphones over your ears and that whole band that goes across your head, that region there is going to be more so what is the parietal lobe of the brain. P-A-R-I-E-T-A-L. Now, when it comes down to vision, the parietal lobe of the brain is very important in eye movements, the ability to follow something. If you're following somebody's finger or you're following a car, if you're following something to your left, that is controlled by the left parietal lobe of the brain. If you're following something to the right, that is controlled by the right parietal lobe of the brain. So what does this mean? When you're looking at a child and you're playing with the child and you're presenting toys to the child, if the child cannot see it on the child's left side or the right side, you suspect that there's something wrong with that occipital lobe of the brain. If you have a toy or a flashlight and you want the child to try to follow it, but the child cannot follow it in a particular direction, you now are going to suspect that there's a problem to the parietal lobe of the brain. The left parietal lobe of the brain is also very important in future years as it comes down to reading, reading words. Now, the next area of the brain is the temporal lobe of the brain, kind of near the temples on the sides of your head. And the temporal lobe of the brain is something that's going to also be involved with reading. The left temporal lobe of the brain is involved with reading, while the right temporal lobe of the brain is involved in recognizing music. And then the last part of the brain that we're going to talk about today is the frontal lobe. This is near the forehead area. And the frontal lobe of the brain is important for scanning. The difference between 
scanning and following is that when you're following a moving object, there's something for you to follow. But if you're reading a book and you're not using your finger, you are just scanning your eye from one location to the next. That is controlled by the frontal lobe of the brain. The left frontal lobe of the brain controls your ability to scan to the right. And the right frontal lobe of the brain allows you to scan to the left. But if you do notice that a child has problems with scanning like that, in other words, they don't just scan and move their eyes, but rather this child will move his or her whole head instead. Damage to the frontal lobe of the brain also affects problem-solving, executive functioning. So this is something we really need to pay very close attention to because the way that this child may learn and solve problems as he or she grows up, we may need to involve other professionals to help there as well. So overall, this entire process of vision, we could see that vision just isn't a matter of the eyes receiving the light the way that a camera film does. But human vision involves many different regions of the brain and millions and millions of cells, millions of fibers, and millions of connections within the brain. Two-thirds of the human brain is involved in vision. Two-thirds of the human brain is involved in vision. And each time that a child is looking at something or learns to move the eyes or moves the eyes, there are new connections being created in different regions of the brain. So we know that it is the first five years of life are very, very important in the development of vision. It is very rapid how vision development occurs early on in life. But it will continue to develop even as children grow older, but it is not quite as fast. So this is why the work that all of you do is so important because you're not only directly working with the child to protect the eyes from becoming damaged, and to improve the lighting so that the child can see better. But you're also stimulating the development of these connections within the brain for vision to occur. And if you could teach the families about these things, as well as other teachers, then the child is going to have a much greater chance of developing more and more vision. So in our future topics, we will discuss a little bit more about how vision develops. So at this time, I'll open it up to any questions that you may have. Uh, if anybody has any questions whatsoever, uh, please please ask the questions. And don't feel that this is a real basic question because, believe me, if you're thinking this question, there's a lot of other people out there who are thinking the same thing. So are there any questions out there? Go ahead and unmute your phone 
and uh, introduce yourself and ask your question if you have any questions. Okay, are there no questions tonight? Okay, I guess everybody's ready to go home and have dinner then, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, I want to thank everybody here for participating on this lecture. I'd like to thank uh, Dick Burden from Airs LA. Airs LA is the audio internet reading service of Los Angeles, and they not only record all of our lectures, but they record other lectures as well, as well as books and other types of meetings and seminars. In fact, last Saturday, uh, Airs LA just recorded a very, very interesting lecture which is related to gene therapy. Gene therapy. And this was for the Foundation Fighting Blindness meeting. So if you have any families who have children who have a inherited retinal disorder, uh, this this will be very, very interesting for you to listen to. So uh, this podcast that we're recording here, if you want to listen to it again, we will be sending the podcast to... Braille Institute's website, and you could also find it at Airs LA. And the web address for Airs LA is www.airsla.org. That's A-I-R-S-L-A.org. So I thank you all very, very much, and uh, we'll see you all next month.